Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. So today I have Paul Chisano here on the podcast. Let me tell you a bit about how we got to know each other. So uh, about six months ago, a friend who knew I was interested in this sort of research sent me a link to um, something like this on Hacker News, an, an editable abstract syntax tree. I really was excited about that particular link, but, but even better was a really lively discussion in the comments where it seemed like everyone was competing to include as many links to similar tools as, as they could, and I, I collected all those links. I think it was like 15 or so amazing links that I'd never heard of before. And uh, one of them was Unison, and through that I found the creator, Paul. And of all the links, and of all the things I was planning to do that afternoon, this was the most compelling, so I canceled all, all my plans for the afternoon and spent the, the immediately next five hours reading every word I could find that Paul Chisano had ever written. I fell just into a deep, deep Paul hole, and I loved it, and it was, it was wonderful, and I learned so much about distributed systems, and I got to see how his brain worked, um, because he's been working on this project for like three and a half, four years. He's been bootstrapping it while he's been doing consulting. I was telling everybody, I told my parents about how excited I was about this, this Paul guy from Boston that, that I was reading about, and they said, wow, so are you going to reach out? And I was like, well, I don't know. Uh, and so the next, next day I saw that, that he, that Unison has a Gitter account. And so I, I clicked on his name and I, I saw that I could write him a private message. And so I, I, I constructed one. I wasn't going to hit send, but then as you do, you ac I accidentally hit the enter key when I was like half, half written the message. And so it sent. So I was like, all right, well, I'm in. So I, I, uh, I might as well go all in. So I finished the message and I hit enter. And then he replied right away. And uh, I think it was. I think he's. I think he was like, "Well, are you free right now?" And so I was, and we Google Hangouted, and we we were, we got along, and then we decided to pair program sometime later. I don't. I wasn't much of a help uh, for various reasons. It, it's you know a lot of what he's doing is is over my head, um, but I, but I uh, am. I was lucky to be helpful in other respects on, on like the product side and, 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 and various miscellaneous things. We've been working together in, in various ways um, over the past few months. And then uh, a few weeks ago, if you read my blog, you, you remember I, I had a surprise trip to Boston for this conference. And uh, Paul was the one who invited me to that conference. And it was, it was really fun. I stayed at his house and met, I met his, his whole family. And it was a blast. Um, and, and now, yeah, now we're close friends, and we, we talk multiple times a week, and we're working on similar kinds of uh, projects, and um, and it's really it's really great. Um, I guess some some of you might know Paul uh, from a different route because he is a he's also a bit of a Scala celebrity. He wrote a book um, about functional programming in Scala with uh, his co-author Runar, and. And yeah, I think right uh, right now or, or soon he's giving a talk at, at the main like the keynote talk at, at a main Scala conference. So um, so that that's kind of his alter ego. He's uh, he's a Scala person, and, and he's also creating this this new Unison language, um, which I think could could be as big of a jump for creating technology as when Amazon created. What we call the cloud, uh, cloud computing. I think I think this could be 
an equivalent jump in the expressive power of, um, of technological systems. So without further ado, I bring you Paul Chisano. So I've got Paul Chisano here on the podcast. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Steve. Hey, Paul. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you've been working on programming language research for like three or four years now, and I know your motivations uh, have shifted over time, but what initially inspired this research? So yeah, it was, it was sort of a, a combination of, of things. So yeah, I'd been working in industry for a while and um, doing functional programming in industry. And um, I, so, so first of all, uh, kind of in, so, so something I sort of noticed while uh, just working as a functional programmer and, and building like, you know, bigger systems using functional programming is, um, I had this experience multiple times of, uh, you know, I would implement something in one way and it might be like a few months later or, or, you know, some period of time later, I would sort of realize that, or, you know, it'd be discussions with, uh, the folks I worked with. Uh, I would realize that if I had just done, if I had done something like just slightly differently, if I'd like used a slightly different representation, uh, or something like that, like, it would have saved literally like months of work. And um, so I kind of had that, uh, I had that like realization, um, like, or I, I had that sort of happen to me enough times that like eventually I sort of got it in my head that sort of there are these like foundational assumptions behind uh, the software that we write. And and those foundational assumptions are, are like so critical and have such a huge impact on, on your productivity and, you know, how, how easily you, you can produce different kinds of software. And so I, yeah, so I, I guess I was like very much on the lookout for uh, like, what are, what are sort of like the core things that, that make program, programming these systems easy or complicated and, uh, you know, like, so I, that, that, that kind of like bug was, was in my head. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and one of the things I really like about functional programming is that it's sort of this methodology where you can actually very quickly iterate on different foundational assumptions. So like when you build a functional, uh, a system in, in a functional style, like, yeah, I mean, I, like I found that just like whiteboarding with, uh, you know, my colleagues, it was, it was sort of like, we could, you know, figure out what the implications were of like 10 different design choices, uh, very, very quickly and, and also very precisely. So we could actually kind of reason about it. And, um, so, so that kind of felt like a very, a, a nice thing to be able to do and, and kind of got me thinking more, more in that, that style. Um, so that was kind of like one, one thing. Uh, sort of uh, kind of rambly response there. Okay, so then the other uh, the other thing I kind of noticed that's that sort of started to bother me was that there was a lot of my time uh, spent as a programmer was was doing uh, kind of boring code or, or, th- or things that felt like tedious or needlessly complicated. Um, like I, I always I always talk about you know there's sort of like the essence of the problem that you're solving. And then there's kind of like a whole bunch of other stuff 
that you have to do as a programmer around that. Um, like we had a, so I, I was working at a standard, standard and Poor's uh, writing sort of uh, software for the finance industry. And we had this uh, portfolio analytics engine and, you know, the, the, the engine itself was, was kind of interesting. It was like, you know, uh, we were sort of building up these interesting computations for uh, analyzing portfolio performance and breaking it down in different ways. And so that was kind of like the core, the core of the problem. But then there's like a whole bunch of other stuff that was not really, uh, not really like, you know, that not really the core part of the problem. It's just like, okay, dealing with IO and like, how do you get the description of, of the job that you need to run and you need to like do some parsing there. And then like, how do you like serialize the results? And then, okay, we're like running this on tons of nodes and, and doing a whole bunch of jobs in, in parallel and, and like, like all this other stuff that, um, you know, while it was obviously like important, it, it was like, it felt like there was a lot of repetition and, and tedious work there. And, um, so yeah, I guess I started sort of feeling like, okay, I wonder if you could uh, sort of get at the root of like, what, what, is, what is it that really makes all that other stuff so complicated? Or not necessarily complicated, but what is it, what is it that makes it so that all that other stuff, stuff occupies so much of your time uh, as a programmer? Um, okay, so yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of stop there, but yeah, that, that, so that was part of the motivation for like research into, into new programming languages. I see. So to go back to your first point uh, about how picking the wrong foundation can sometimes uh, take you like take months of work, add months of work, mm -hmm. um, or picking the right foundation could cut months of work. Could you walk us through, uh, like, I, I don't know if you have any example off the top of your head, but could you walk us through kind of how how it's hard to visualize like months of work from from one common uh like one bad foundation like how would that play out so what one sort of example is uh so for this portfolio analytics engine that i worked on um there's there's different and I, I probably can't get into like too much detail but i can i think i can sort of give the gist um there's certain way there's 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 different ways of representing the calcu the actual calculations themselves, okay? And um, I mean, they're and 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 you know, choice the the first choice, uh, you know, it might be sort of very straightforward and and you know, kind of like the obvious uh, way of representing those calculations. Um, but you might the thing that you might not uh, sort of figure out until later, and, and this actually kind of happened with us, is that uh, the first representation was actually like harder to compose into um, into like a full like report. So so if you're running like a, a bigger uh, job, you might have like a hundred calculations that you're all performing, and um, you want to be performing, you know all of them sort of at once and ideally in as few passes over the data as possible. And, um, and so, so one, one representation actually makes that extremely difficult. And then another representation might make that, that job of composing a bunch of, uh, of calculations into a very efficient uh, overall uh, calculation that, that does like a full report that, 
the other the second representation may make that a whole heck of a lot easier oh so from it sounds like you're talking about like maybe the way you're laying out this data in different data stores like like, like maybe having it more normalized in sql like an sql data store is that what you're talking about or is it deeper than that uh no it's more like um like probably the best analogy would be like if you have if you have a calculation and it's represented as just like an opaque function, um, like, you know, it's a function from say a time series of, you know, portfolio returns to whatever, another time series output. And if that's sort of like your core representation is like the sort of more opaque thing, then, um, you know, if you wanted to like do two calculations over the same time series, then you really have no choice but to like uh, do two separate passes over the data, and you know, call uh, you know call the first function. It burns through the time series and computes its result, and then you call the second function, which also goes through the through the time series and computes its result. Um, whereas if you if you have a, another representation where it's not just as opaque, then you can actually combine uh, representations. And into like a fused computation that does say both both calculations in one pass. I see. Okay. Uh, so th so things like that, um, and yeah, that was just, that was just sort of like the first example that I, I thought of uh, off the top of my head. It's funny, like I I remember the this experience of like having this like oh oh duh like why didn't you know we do it this way before and that would have been a hundred times easier. And like, I remember just that that's like, that's the memory that I have. But then like, you asked me like, well, what were the specific uh, cases? And I'm like, geez, this is actually a while ago. And I don't, I don't actually remember most of them. So I'm actually surprised I remembered that, that one uh, example. <laughs> um, yeah, but right, well, yeah, it was very, very formative. I, like it's sort of, it's like a very humbling thing um, to, to just, see how badly you can make uh, technical decisions and then and then build on those those bad decisions and then like realize that wow you've you've built this like skyscraper you know on, on foundations and it's you know you could just keep building on it but you can just sort of see that that's gonna just make things worse and um yeah so so that like yeah, I just have this, this, it created this drive that like, I just, I really want to build on the best ideas and, and figure out what the best foundations are. Mm, yeah. Don't we all, uh, this, um, it makes me think about, uh, like I, I feel that way all the time that I, I, I screw up technical decisions right now. Uh, where my head's at is, uh, I, I have this big Firebase database and I, I constantly am running into problems with the way my data is laid out and like not being able to access it in the ways I need. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I keep changing the ways I lay it out in Firebase, but it doesn't like I it, it, it feels like um, the, the fundamental assumptions underlying how Firebase works are like working against me rather than working with me. And, and I like have to almost be like a genius to, to lay it out in the right way. Mm. Uh, so anyways, uh, that's, that's where my head's at now. I, I want to transition to... Um, your, one of your initial blog posts when you started doing this research, mm -hmm. uh, that, that blog post was called uh, like, like why uh, designers should care about type theory and the future of apps, something like that. Yeah, and yeah. So, <laughs> so why, do you, why is type theory 
uh, important here? And what does that unlock for us? Okay, yeah. So right. So the the blog post, yeah. I I, I think it was it was probably uh, around that time. I was yeah. I, I kind of wrote up this like it was like almost like a manifesto, um, and about sort of how I sort of think about about software software and, and really just like computing in general and how we organize computing, and uh, so. I guess it's it starts with this uh, view that and 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 honestly I'm like I'm still trying to figure out the best way to explain this this viewpoint because um, it's sort of a subtle thing but um, so you know you can tell me that my explanation is terrible and but but yeah so I'm gonna do my best here <laughs> uh, but it's so it sort of starts with this view that. Um, Interacting with a computer um, is w whether you're whether you're doing it, you know, as a programmer. Obviously, you're interacting with a computer and you're describing computations by, you know, editing a text file. Um, but it's the the view is that when you interact with uh, like an application, you're also doing a form of programming. It's just that it's the the application is is kind of a very limited uh, programming environment. I mean, depending on the application. Um, so, like, uh, I mean, mo so so certainly, if you're like you know a programmer and you're like editing you know uh, a, a Java program in Eclipse or something, you know, okay, we all have a sense that like that's that's programming. Um, but and then I think a lot a lot of people would also say that if you're editing a spreadsheet, uh, that's that's also a form of programming. Uh, it's just that you know spreadsheets are a, they're a more limited uh, programming environment. It's more they or they give you access to to a more limited programming model. Uh, but it's still it's still definitely a form of programming. You know you're creating programs, you're interacting with them. And you know the spreadsheet is is like an editor for for a programming language, but the I guess the 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 view is that it's it's not just like spreadsheets and text editors that are you know access to programming. It's really every every uh, application is is a way of of describing computations, and it's just that you know like even like Gmail you're you're it's a you know you you can't really do all that much in in gmail other than sort of like the fixed set of uh you know computations that gmail gives you access to um so it's not it's not all that expressive but it's still there's that idea of like you're giving the user access to um you know the ability to define certain kinds of computations and you're giving them some sort of editor or that's you know somewhat interactive for defining those computations, and so um, that viewpoint that all all of computing is is a form of programming and program editing is um, like the the sort of that manifesto blog post was was sort of like a call to like hey what if we kind of actually try to organize organize computing in this way much more explicitly and um, and if you if you recognize a sort of all of computing as as a form of programming 
then all of a sudden, like all these really powerful tools from the programming languages world, uh, you can like bring them to bear on, on the problem. And um, so that's things like type systems and, um, you know, composability, abstraction, like all these things that are incredibly useful for programmers. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if sort of ordinary, you know, end users who aren't, you know, expert programmers also got access to that, that same stuff. Um, and yeah, so, yeah, so I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, to like, what would that unlock? So if, if we had composability and abstraction at the end user level in Gmail, say like, what could we do that we can't do now? So, um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I feel like I should come up with some better examples. Um, so, so one example that I was, yeah, I had, I had another uh, post about, uh, I was just talking about like, I was in a word document, uh, I was editing a word document and, um, I had to, I had this task that I needed to get done. I was like, okay, I needed to, uh, go through all of the tracked, somebody had tracked changes on the document and I needed to go through all the tracked changes and, um, like accept all of them and then get rid of all, any other comments or something like that. Um, and I was like trying to figure out how to do it and like the, you know, words like interface and, and, you know, there's like, there's like some menu option for it. And like, eventually I just sort of like gave up and I'm like, okay, let me just like Google this. And okay. Then I figured out how to Google it or so then I, I figured it out and it was like, not, not a big deal. But then I was like thinking about there were like a whole bunch of like even like slight like related use cases like what if I wanted to delete comments that were made by me, uh, you know, within the last week or something like that, or you know, comments that were made by Steve, you know, uh, that that mentioned the word, uh, you know, unison or something like that. I mean, and I just kind of like came up with those those use cases like on the spot. And I think if you, so first of all, those right, right now to like do, to do that, uh, computation, it's like word does not have like an option for that. Or, or I mean, it's like, as soon as you move even the slightest bit away from like the completely like standard, like vanilla things or that you like fixed set of actions that are exposed by word. Um, you're like into like uncharted territory of like, you know, you have to like, uh, either do it manually or like learn some, you know, obtuse, uh, programming language for like scripting word documents or something like that. I think this sounds amazing. Like being able to, you know, really have the expressibility over all the data and all the apps we have. And so I, I think like, uh, this sounds pretty similar to the, the vision, at least, I don't know, in practice, of like IFFT, like IFT and, and Zapier. So mm -hmm. how do those tools, maybe you don't know them, but, but how do those tools in your mind like not um, live up to this vision that you have in your head? So, yeah, I think um, those are good tools. So, so I think, I mean, so in general, I think it's like, okay, so apps don't really support I mean, out of the box, they don't really support any kind of like customization or fine grained access to, you know, 
you know, different types of computations. And so, so, so out of the box, there, there, there are these very rigid things and, and everybody kind of knows that. And so, so yeah, something like if this, then that, and, and, and Zapier are, yeah, it like on the one hand, it's like, okay, great. This is like a step in the right direction of like, okay, you're providing access to some amount of programmability. Um, that you know you can use to extend the the, the functionality of, of these applications and, and do more with them and so so that's that's cool okay but um, yeah I, I guess what I would say is like we can just do so so much better than than, than that um, I mean like like it would it would be very easy for me to come up with use cases uh, you know and I could probably, I could probably like rattle off like ten on the spot. That you know, where like, if this then that like doesn't, it just can't express it, um, and so so and and I think the the main problem is that um, you you actually want something that's extremely general purpose, and um, that that could in, in that really in theory you could express absolutely any computation you wanted. And um, if you don't, if you don't sort of start with that, then you're always going to be taking something that's not really general purpose, and then kind of like bolting on, you know, a bunch of like ad hoc integrations that, uh, you know, kind of sort of do, you know, the use cases that that um, you know the people are requesting the most that day. But but it's, you know, what I mean, it's like not really solving the fundamental issue, which is that. You really should be able to express really anything you want, and oh. um, yeah. I mean, another thing is like just as me personally, like I, you know, I like like open source technology, and and I really, yeah, it makes me, yeah. I guess I would I would much prefer that when I interact with computers, if I have to define that function, that's like, you know, the. Uh, accept all changes, you know, made by me in the past week. Um, like that, that little like snippet of computation that I define, like if I have to define that, it's like, I want to own that and not just have it be like tied to some, uh, proprietary platform that, you know, who knows what will happen to it. Um, and, and I feel like that's especially true as you start building more, more, uh, sophisticated, uh, programs and computations is, you know, you're like, yeah, I don't want this to just be like totally owned by one company um, and who could like cut off my access to it, you know, at any time. And I don't know. So that's, that's more of like just my personal uh, preference is like, um, I don't want to, I don't really want anyone to like own the core programming technology and be able to like cut off access to it. I don't know. Do you still believe in this vision for the future of software? Yes, yeah, de definitely. I mean, I think it's it's a very difficult thing to to do, and I think it's you know, like I feel like there's a lot of re research that needs to be done there, but it's it's also something I'm like really excited about because I think it would just unlock all these possibilities for for lots of people uh, using computers. Um, actually, I thought of like a really good. Um, analogy. I was actually I was talking to um, uh, my friend uh, Runar Bjarnason about this. He he was co-author on on the book, and I also worked with him. 
And um, Sorry, which book? Uh, this is the Functional Programming in Scala. It's a, a a book on functional programming that we wrote together. And we were we were talking about this this kind of vision of like you know uh, the sort of application free world and like kind of what it meant. And we came up with this analogy of like, um, what what we want is, um, we want it to be like okay, there's this. It, we want it to be more like Spotify, okay? Like, or, or you know, existing, like, like a streaming music service. There's this full set. There's this huge set of, like, possible uh, songs that just exist, it, it, you know, on Spotify. And, and you can take any of those songs that you want and, like, assemble, you know, 10 of those songs into your own playlist, right? And you don't need anyone's permission to do that. You don't need to, like you know, hire somebody, you don't need to like wait for like a record company person to like put together a compilation album. You just do it, right? You see, you have like access to like the full space of like possible music and you can like assemble that into little albums and playlists and, and things like that of your choosing. And, and like, and so like, yeah, the vision is like, yeah, it would be so great if we could do the same thing kind of with computations where it's like, you as a user of a computer, you have access to all the computations. They're all out there and you can assemble them into, you know, you know, something resembling an application, but it's, it's more like a playlist because it's not like, uh, you know, you just say like, Oh, I need access to like the send email function and this, this piece of functionality and that, and you just like, boom, bring it all together. You don't need to like, you know, even be a programmer to do it. I mean, you're doing programming, in, in, you know, assembling, uh, you know, all those functions into kind of one place, but there's not these like rigid barriers between things and, you know, really anything that you can imagine that's useful to do, uh, you know, can, can be done. And, um, and so that's like, that just sounds like amazing. So, so I'm still like very excited about that vision and kind of making that work. Okay. But <laughs> Um, by the way, did that, I don't know. What do you think of that analogy? I'm, I'm curious, like, did that make any sense at all? <laughs> it made a lot of sense. I guess I, I see how Spotify gives me control over songs and how I can make, turn songs into a playlist. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so you're saying, you're saying, so, so code could be, is the analogy is that code could also be songs and I can mi- mix and match code together. Yeah. So, so think about like you're working in like Gmail. Okay. okay. And like, like, I, I, like the analogy is like Gmail is like an album that, you know, or, or, or somebody has, has put together. It's like a fixed set of actions that you can do. Right. But yeah. if you want to like, you know, do something in response to an email. Like when you get an email that mentions a certain subject, you want to do something with it, or maybe you want to like batch up a bunch of emails with that mention a keyword into a weekly digest or whatever it is. Um, like unless that the Gmail uh, application sort of already has that um, functionality available you're you're sort of like out of luck or maybe there's maybe somebody's written like a plugin or something that does it but it's like okay so but what i'm saying is like 
no, literally, like, you would just have access to, you know, yeah, if you needed to, like, pull in some additional functionality for, for working with your email and do anything you wanted, like, no matter how complicated, um, you would be sort of empowered to do that. And you wouldn't be constrained to, like, just have this, like, fixed set of, of actions. Um, I, I I like this analogy a lot. And it the way you think about uh, how you have the space of all songs and you can kind of mix and match as you want. You don't have to think about, you don't need a label to kind of make an album for you. Mm -hmm. I like that part of it. It feels like if I were going to make a Gmail album of computations, it would be more, it wouldn't be a sequential list of things. It would be like the way that the, 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 computations in the gmail playlist would relate to each other would be like nested like a complicated nested structure thing yeah 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 right so yeah that, that's a part of the analogy where it breaks down for me but besides that i, I like a lot of it cool okay <laughs> yeah so, still, yeah this is definitely still trying to like figure out the best way to you know talk about this stuff and so yeah. i just have a quick question for you sure. um, and then we'll talk more about unison specifically um from my perspective while that while Unison does forward this vision in, in some degrees, and they're related in some degrees, Unison is kind of solving slightly different problems in a slightly different way, or mm -hmm. would you disagree with that? Yeah, yeah. So I think Unison, like the stuff I've been working on, uh, especially more recently with Unison, is like, it, it, it probably does not seem, you know, obviously related to, to any of that uh, kind of, you know, vision of like how, how we could organize computing differently. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Okay, uh, great. Cool. Okay. That's good to clarify. Um, cool. So now maybe I think it's time to give the, the unison, uh, like overview. Um, like if maybe if you could start about like, uh, what problems, uh, does it solve? Um, yeah, you start with what problems it solves, um, and then maybe go into like some of the specific features you're excited about. Okay, so... Well, actually, yeah. sorry, hold oh, on. Yep, go ahead. <laughs> I'm wondering now, I kind of want you to start with with um, how you, like, kind of your history of working on Unison. Yeah, so, like, yeah. Start with, like, why, like, the problems you initially wanted to start working on, why you built a semantic editor, then what you realized, you know, kind of walk us through that whole thing. Okay, yeah, so I guess when I started working on Unison, it was like, you know, I was sort of, like I, I kind of joked. I was like, "Okay, I'm just gonna try to fix programming." <laughs> like it was just, you know, this like crazy research project, and I was gonna explore a bunch of stuff. And like, you know, there's this, there are a whole bunch of things about uh, programming that and computing that that was like, "Wow, this could be done so much better." And um, and so I, you know, it was just like, kind of exploring d different aspects of that. And so. Um, and yeah, a lot of it came out of just my experience, like working in industry and seeing, seeing what was hard and what was more complicated than I felt like it needed to be. Um, so, so one of the things I focused on initially was, um, the, the programming language editor. Uh, so, you know, I'd always thought it was like kind of, uh, archaic that we're like still editing, you know, our programs in text files and, you know, you have syntax errors, um, you have type errors. I mean, type errors are okay, but what's kind of not okay is that 
you write a whole bunch of code in this totally unconstrained uh, format of like a you know text buffer, and then you submit that as a bat you know in as a batch to like the compiler, and then it spits back a whole bunch of errors, and you know like that it just like didn't seem like a really good experience, and you you know if you are implementing a refactoring, you're doing like text munging, um, and like yeah, there's sort of IDEs that exist, but like I just kind of thought that things could be done a lot better if it was a more structured editor. And so, yeah, I, so one of the first things I was working on with Unison was this, um, uh, I call it like a, a semantic editor um, where, so it wasn't just a text editor. It, it was, it was an editor for the, for uh, the Unison language where um, you, could not have a syntax error or a type error. So if you, so the syntax errors, that's actually pretty easy to achieve, uh, pre preventing syntax errors. Um, you know, you just like, you don't like make people manually balance parentheses and, and, and things like that. And so, so that's kind of not, not too hard. Um, and then, but then actually preventing type errors, um, like that kind of required like a little bit more rethinking like that. That means that you actually need to prevent people from like just putting anything they want. That's, that's uh, sort of just at any point in the, in the tree, in the syntax tree that they're, that they're editing. You want to make it so that, Oh, if they are trying to call like the square root function and they go to fill in the argument to square root and they open up the, you know, the editing box, uh, and if they try to like put in a, uh, some text there, it, it would sort of like not, not even let them accept that, that change. Like the, you know, the box would turn red and it would say like the goal type here is you need to provide a number and you're providing text and you know, that that doesn't work. And so, so yeah, I kind of like that idea and I was like exploring it for a while. And if you, if you go on like, uh, unisonweb.org, you know, it's, which is basically like a research blog. Um, you know, you can like s see some like past experiments with that. And, um, okay. So that was like pretty interesting, but okay. But then the other thing that I was, was really interested in doing something about was making it simpler to build, uh, like distributed systems. And in, so, so I guess like the, this was kind of like the other thing that, that I thought could be like made way better about, about programming is that, um, yeah, just from my experience, it was like a lot of the, um, a lot of the work that I was doing was just like in, you know, not, not writing the logic that ran on like a single node, but it was in, you know, you have a system, a, an entire software system where it's, a whole bunch of nodes and they all need to talk to each other, coordinate in some way uh, to do some overall computation. And it was all that other stuff of like stitching together a whole bunch of nodes into, into a cohesive system. Like that was, that was like another big area that felt like there was a ton of complexity that could be reduced. And so, um, yeah, I guess I kind of got to a fork in the road where I was like, okay, this research on the editor is like pretty interesting, but, uh, 
you know, do I, do I want to focus more on that or do I want to focus more on the core language and its support for building distributed systems? And I, I guess I kind of came to the conclusion that I felt like uh, the, having much better support for distributed systems was like, that was, that, that was like more of a bottleneck for like, at least my productivity as a programmer. Um, because I guess the, th the thing about, you know, the, our editing tools is they are kind of archaic, like editing, you know, these in a text editor and like, you know, even using Git and, you know, all, all these things that programmers use, like they're, they're definitely archaic and you can definitely look at them and say like, okay, this could be done a lot better. But at least if you're, if you're a programmer who's been doing it for a while, you just sort of attain a level of fluency with those tools and they, they become much less of a bottleneck for your productivity. Um, even though you kind of recognize that, Hey, that it could be done better. And so, so yeah, I just sort of made this decision like, okay, I'm going to focus on this thing that really is like a big problem for, for myself and for, you know, other people who are uh, professional programmers. Um, so yeah, th that was kind of the decision I, I got to, but I mean, I'm still really passionate about the other stuff, but you know, there's only so much time in the day and um, yeah. <laughs> cool. That makes sense. Uh, I really liked the, the talk you gave uh, at the Boston workshop a few weeks ago, uh, explaining why you think there's, uh, there's more room at, at the bottleneck that you're working on as opposed to the one you used to be working on. So um, I don't know. I, I think you did a pretty good job here of explaining it. But if you wanted to talk more about like why you think that is, um, yeah. So I think in particular, I really like the analogy of the uh, the brain interface to to x eighty six assembly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So right. I I sort of like um, you know I was thinking about like okay in terms of what has what makes the biggest impact on, you know, our ability to like, uh, create programs. And so, so one, one area that we can focus on is like, uh, is doing things to like reduce program complexity. Uh, so that's things like, okay, you know, introducing new programming languages that, you know, are more composable that are easier to think about that are easier to like glue, glue programs together into building bigger, uh, building blocks. So that's like things like moving from x86 assembly to, you know, like a high level modern programming language like Haskell or something. And okay, so so that's kind of like one one thing that we can focus on. And then the other the other area that we can focus on is things like just making the interface to programming and editing programs like more fluent, you know, more direct, uh, more immediate feedback, uh, you know, things like that. And yeah, so sort of like the, you know, the logical like, uh, endpoint of that might be like a direct brain interface, uh, where, you know, like, yeah, I imagine you, you could like write x86 assembly or produce x86 assembly code at, at the speed of thought. You don't even have to type it. Um, you know, maybe you have all kinds of information about x86 that's like instantly at your disposal. You don't even need to like open up a new browser tab. It's just like instantly there in your brain. Um, and 
So that that would be like a very fluent interface to uh, you know x86 assembly, but you know that it's, it seems like it's probably more important, uh, or you get more bang for your buck by just like simply moving to a, a, a better programming language um, that you know is 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 much less complicated to 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 program with, and even if you had to like write Haskell in, you know, a, a, a dumb text editor. Um, if you're building a program of, of any significant uh, size or, or complexity, uh, you know, Haskell is, is probably going to be a, a better choice than, than writing an assembly code, no matter how quickly or how direct the assembly code generating interface, uh, you know, is. So, so yeah, that's kind of, that was like a way of, of thinking about, you know, what, what the relative priorities uh, should be of, of, you know, which ones we focus on. Um, I do think it's, it's more of an open question now, like, like right now, like sort of with the benefit of hindsight, we're all able to look back at, you know, um, you know, like assembly language and we're like, I'm glad we didn't stop at assembly language. Like, I'm glad that we, you know, kept building additional languages that, that made it a lot simpler to build these bigger software systems. Um, right. And, and people are like, okay, yeah, I'm glad that was, that, that definitely paid off. But if we're like asking that same question today, yeah, I, I guess I'm always like curious, like what do people think of, about the future? Is it, are we kind of done with programming languages and they're all kind of the same at this point and we're not going to see any real major advancements or, you know, are there, are we going to maybe see like another big jump of like, you know, going from like assembly language to high level languages? And is, is, do we still have that, you know, in, in the future to, to look forward to? Yeah. Well, I think, um, that's kind of the topic of Brett Victor's future programming talk that he gave at Dropbox. And, and, um, I kind of refer to that in the first episode of this podcast that, uh, the core thesis I have at the very bottom is, that we're gonna, there are improvements to be made. Uh, like you know, we all just we don't, we don't all agree on what those improvements are. Um, but I think most of the people listening to this right now uh, will agree with you, or at least they want to believe that there's more improvements to be made. We can do better than the languages we're stuck with right now. Um, sweet. So um, I think now would be a great time for you to kind of walk us through what problems Unison solves and some of the features and some of the accomplishments you, uh, you've been able to achieve so far. Okay, yeah, so, so Unison is, the, so the core language is, um, I'd say like the, the defining kind of characteristic of it is that it lets you treat um, uh, any sort of pool of, of nodes or compute resources like it's a single computer. And so, so, so you write uh, you write a single Unison program, and you when you run that program, it is actually going to evaluate. It's 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 going to spread itself out onto however many nodes you spe- that that are specified in the program, and it might so it might be running on like thousands or tens of thousands of nodes, but you just wrote kind of one program to describe all that, and so it's really like that entire uh that entire you know collection of computers is like functioning like a single supercomputer 
and you, your Unison program is just you know running on that supercomputer. And like, so that's kind of the view, and and it's um, in order for that to work, like the, there's a bunch of things that that the that the language runtime needs to be able to support. And oh, so and, and by the way, this is like, you know, you know, there there hasn't been a release of Unison yet. Like the project was like in R and D mode for a while, and we're actually we're just now kind of like working on, on, you know, getting to the first release and it's, you know, building the actual Unison runtime. Um, so, you know, just, yeah, to take everything I'm saying with a, a grain of salt, but, but yeah, that, that's kind of the view is you, you write one program, it runs on however many nodes you, you want it to. And the run, the Unison runtime is, is handling all kinds of stuff for you under the hood. It's it's doing like deployment of code dynamically. It's happening transparently. Um, you can hop computations between nodes, and Unison will be you know serializing those computations. And you know you don't have to be writing like parsing and serialization code and sending JSON blobs around. Like you're not wor worried about any of that. You're just kind of focused on you know defining the computation itself. And um, yeah. Uh, oh, so so okay. to be honest, this sounds like you know too good to be true. I uh, okay. <laughs> a, a class in college, um, uh, where we had to follow Larry and Sergey's initial paper uh, about that described the Google search engine. Uh, mm -hmm. We split up into two of four. We all took a different piece of the search engine, and and we had to like you know bring it together. And it took us hundreds of hours and thousands of lines of code. And I see on the Unison homepage, you have a, a fully functioning search engine in, I think, what you said, like 15 or 12 lines of code. Like, how does that make any sense? Okay, yeah. So um, I think, I mean, okay, so so I, I want to, like, give a caveat here. Like, so we don't totally, I, I feel like we actually don't totally know how, how complicated um, it, it is to, to build s software systems in the sense that like um, there's so much like incidental complexity that exists right now that um, we, 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 we do, we do know that there are like additional sources of essential complexity. There are like new things that you have to worry about if you're building search engine that, that runs on, you know, 50,000 nodes as opposed to one node. Um, and, you know, same thing for something like Twitter, you know, um, if you're building Twitter and it's, it's running on tens of thousands of nodes versus one node, like there's definitely, there are like a, essentials, uh, there are actual additional sources of complexity. Um, and so, I, I, I have more of a hypothesis, I would say, that the, the amount of additional complexity of building even a distributed search engine or, um, or like a distributed version of Twitter or, you know, Twitter at scale or, or really any of these like big uh, software systems that exist in the world uh, is like my hypothesis is it's, it's really just there is some additional complexity, but it's like constant factors. It's like, maybe it's 10 times as much work to build, uh, you know, Twitter at scale versus Twitter on one computer. But it's not, you know, 
a thousand times as much work. It's like a, it's like the a pretty small like uh, constant factor, and um, and so yeah, like for this like search engine that uh, I sort of started working on as um, just an example, just to kind of explore the expressiveness of the unison language um, is. So here's kind of what I found about um, about that 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 process. So so what I found, and and this is also true of like I also uh, have done some experimenting with like building a distributed uh, version of Twitter, um, distributed scalable version of Twitter. Is like there's actually not that much um, there's not that much that is really unique to, I, I almost feel like Twitter is a better example. Um, so, so maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll kind of talk about that. Um, but yeah, there, there's not really that much about say Twitter that is really like unique to Twitter. Um, and, and, it's, and, and likewise, there's, there's certainly a lot with like a search engine that is not really unique to the search engine. So, I mean, for a search engine, you you have I mean the big thing that you have is, is some sort of search index, where um, I mean this, this is at least in like a simple search engine. Um, you know I'm sure Google has you know all, all kinds of bells and whistles and additional stuff, but um, you know like a search index, you know it's basically like a, just a hash table, you know mapping like a keyword to a set of URLs that contain that keyword. And, and, and so that, uh, now that search index may be huge, right? Because if you've like indexed the whole web, you know, it, it's a ton of data. And so, you know, it's not all sitting on one computer. Um, but uh, that's fine. So, but the, the data structure itself is, um, it's, it's actually doesn't really have anything to do with search engines specifically. It's just like a general purpose distributed data structure. Um, and it's, it's really the same thing with Twitter. Um, you know, so it's like when you actually like break down the problem, uh, into its sort of like little pieces, you, you realize that, okay, a lot of these distributed systems that, you know, people like have, you know, spent tons of time building, like they're actually just like composed of like the same, you know, the same sort of ingredient, you know, same, same sort of like ingredients, I guess. And, um, if you have a, if you had a programming language where you could like properly abstract over entire distributed system components, like very easily, um, which is, and that's like what Unison is like really designed to do. It's like, it's this programming language. You can, you can have an entire distributed system be like, wrapped up in like a function, you know, or like, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's really meant to be like as composable, uh, as you know, as it is when you're like writing code that just runs on one computer. Um, you know, any piece of functionality, you can pull it out into a function, you can abstract over stuff, all that. But now you're doing that at the level of whole distributed systems. Yeah. So it sounds like this is really solving that initial problem you had when uh, you, you mentioned when you were building dashboards with that opaque function and you, you didn't have composability, it sounds like this would have solved that problem. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think it just in general, like composability is like an, an awesome thing, and that's that's basically how we, you know, can cope with complexity of, of building software. Is like we don't just fill it in brick by bit brick. We like build, you know, these we create these building blocks and 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 create more and big, bigger way uh, more and more ways of, of gluing things together. And um, well, here I, I liked the analogy you had in, in that talk you gave, where you you, you start with two bricks and then you make a brick that's now contains those two bricks then you use that brick to create a bigger brick and then use that brick to create bigger bricks um so as a visual way to think about it i think that's to show the power of composability yeah right yeah you 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 never want to just be like you know like if you have a system that is gonna run on a hundred thousand nodes like it it should definitely not be a hundred hundred thousand times as much work as if it runs on one node um, you, you want it to be like, you know, so, something that's more of like a logarithmic thing where it's like, yeah, you, you just sort of keep building up these bigger and bigger, uh, blocks. And then it's like, okay, great. You get to the end and you've built this like massive system, but you've just done it in this very like composable way. Um, and so, yeah, so I think just... I mean, like a search engine, you know, like the actual search part of the search engine, where it's like once the once you have a search index, and you have uh, you have like the web crawlers that are populating that index, like the actual search function is um, the stuff that's actually unique to each system is like I don't know. You find that it's like actually kind of s small. Um, or at least it seems that way to me. I mean, I, I can't wait to actually like once Unison is released and, you know, you can actually, it's like a real implementation of a programming language. Like I can't wait to actually like uh, try it on, on, on stuff um, and actually see if it really is like as easy as it seems like it will be. Uh, but, but yeah, when you, when you can achieve like really good reuse and composability at the level of entire distributed systems, um, and like package package all that up into like functions that you reuse over and over and data structures that you re reuse over and over like that that's the thing that makes it so much simpler to um, to build build these systems um, and and honestly I, I kind of suspect that um, I don't know like even people like working at, at like Google um, I mean I, I I suspect that they have, uh, they, they've probably seen at least some of this like composability, like, it, you know, within their own, um, internal tools that they've built that, that aren't all, you know, exposed to, exposed to, you know, the, the, the public. Um, but yeah, so it, it just seems like there's, there's a, a lot, uh, a lot of things that can just be like kind of written once and then reused over and over. Well, I guess to take the other side of that, it seems like from what I know about Facebook, they kind of take the opposite approach where if you want a tool, like an internal tool to do something slightly different than the one that exists, you just, you know, scrap it and build a new one. Uh, you know, I think that, that there's like, on the one hand, there's the functional programming approach where you think about your beautiful abstractions and your type systems and you build it beautifully from the first time. Um, but, but like sometimes I, I think as a mere mortal... Like it's just easier to like hack it together and 
you know, Node and PHP and JavaScript, and and then just if it if I want to change it later, I'll just rebuild it. So what, what's you know, like how, how do you th- how do you think about like you know for the rest of us who aren't as smart as you are, how do we like, why why how, like how can function functional programming systems be made more mainstream? Mm, um. Well, yeah, I mean. So first of all, yeah, there's there's definitely nothing wrong with like rewriting code, and you know I, I do that all the time, and yeah, you you I, I feel like the it's sometimes it's better to not try to introduce abstraction kind of too early before you really understand like how to do that well. Like sometimes it's better to just like oh I have this. The system I'm trying to build, and I'm just gonna like kind of you know hack it together and not not try to find like the beautiful reusable core bits, right? Uh, but yeah, at a certain point, like you or, or somebody like you you can sort of when you understand the problem better, you're like, oh okay, uh, Twitter is you know as a distributed system it's like oh i can actually assemble it from a few different just very general purpose pieces like oh okay it needs a distributed hash table that does like a certain kind of load balancing and and like demand driven replication and like okay that's cool like that is totally generic i could pull that out into like a library and just write that once um and then like maybe there's like some other aspect of twitter where it's like, oh, um, actually, there's like stuff with like, uh, you know, managing like user accounts, and you know, updating like access, like sort of doing like permissions of of users and, and discovery, or like that type of thing. And like, oh, I could like, I now I fully understand that problem. Like, and I can factor that out into into a nice library. And I think the key thing is that. The, the person that discovers those really good abstractions and, and introduces those libraries, that, that could be a different person than, than the people that are just using those libraries. And um, so it's like, it's actually a good thing in that not everybody has to be like this expert on, you know, abstraction and, you know, finding the best abstractions. It's like, there's can be some people who are really good at that and then some people are like, great, I just call the, the function that's like, you know, uh, that, that somebody else has written that's like very easy to use. And, and so like, and, and that's, that's like what uh, composability and, and, and functional programming like really helps a lot with is like, you can build these like very nice, very easy to use uh, APIs and libraries. And there may be a lot of sophistication behind them but uh, you know the way you actually use them, it can can be very straightforward. So, cool. All right. Yeah, that, that was that was great. Can you talk about content-based hash for identity around Unison terms? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so if you want a, a programming language where it's like the programming language, you, you know, is like. A, describes an entire distributed system. Um, like a big, a big problem that you, that you need to solve is, uh, okay, well, in a distributed system, you maybe have like thousands of nodes and the nodes are gonna be talking to each other uh, and, and data and computations are gonna be moving between nodes. And um, 
so there's this question of like, okay, so how do you do that? How do you like uh, actually send a computation from one node to another? And um, so it's kind of easy to think about like, okay, if you're if you're just sending like a number or like a list of numbers or something from like, you know, uh, one node to another, you're it's sort of like easy to think about how you would how you would make that work. Uh, but if you're sending like a function between nodes, which and and I would I would argue that's like extremely useful to be able to do. It's it's actually kind of necessary that you'd be able to do that. Is that you can send not just not just like numbers and and strings and so forth, but but actually arbitrary computations that have functions in them and, and so forth. If you want to send functions around, you have this like problem, which is that how how do you actually identify um, what the function is that you're sending? And um, so the first way that you could do that is um, like if I'm sending like the factorial, say, say, I'm, say I'm like sending a computation to, to the Steve node and I'm saying, okay, Steve, uh, I want to move a computation to you that, that computes factorial of 10. And um, so like there's this question of like, okay, how do I identify or how do I tell you about or what do I actually send to you? Do I just send the name factorial? Well, if I just send you the name factorial, uh, then that's kind of, that's, that, that's probably not going to work because how do I know that you have the same meaning assigned to factorial as, as I do? Like maybe you have a different definition of factorial than the one I was thinking of. Um, and that, that gets to be even more of a problem when, you know, obviously like, you, you might have an entire ecosystem of libraries that are written with different versions of, of libraries. And, you know, it's sort of like not, not really sustainable or scalable to, to just have unique names for, for every single function and expect that everybody in the universe is going to pick uh, a, a, a different name. Uh, so, so using names is like, that gets very complicated. And um, so, the, so what you can do instead um, is is instead of using names to identify functions, you use hashes to identify functions. So, and and the hash. Uh, so if I'm sending you a computation that's like factorial of ten, um, we would I, I would tell you actually, I wouldn't send you the name factorial. I would send you a hash of of the factorial definition, and the hash would actually incorporate both the definition of factorial itself, like how it's defined exactly. And it would also incorporate the hashes of any of the dependencies of the factorial function. So it, so it really does exactly pin down the uh, particular implementation of the function that I'm talking about. And so I would send, I would say, Steve, I want you to evaluate, you know, this hash uh, applied to 10. And you would say, oh, great, I already have that hash because, you know, you asked me to evaluate this last week and I, I cached it. Um, or you might say, oh, I don't know about that hash. Can you send it to me? And so I would, at, at runtime, this is the, in the Unison runtime, I would synchronize that hash to you, to you and you would cache it locally and then you would proceed with the computation. So, um, so that's kind of the basic 
kind of core idea. Um, and it's, it's not really a new idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, people have been identifying things by hashes for, for a while. Um, yeah, in fact, there's, yeah, there's something called the Nix. It's like a build tool where you, you, they're using hashes in a similar way, but it's at the level, it's at the granularity of, of an entire, um, code base or like project. Um, Whereas Unison is like it's really at the at the level of individual functions in in the Unison language, and um, so it's it's an idea that it it works really well. It's very robust. It's you know makes things a lot simpler when you're uh, building this kind of like distributed runtime. Uh, but it also has all these interesting implications uh for kind of the rest of the programming language and and those kind of needed to be like worked through and that yeah that, that was actually a lot of the research on uh like in unison was just figuring out yeah okay this is like a great like starting assumption but there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be figured out after this to like uh you know build a, a complete programming language that you can actually use so as long as i've known you whenever we talk about interesting things, you talk about how you like to have a framework by which you make your decisions. Uh, it like makes you more comfortable, that's how your brain works, thinking through a framework. So could you walk me through like, how you became that way? W what are some like example frameworks you use often? You know, what's your, like, I'm asking for the framework framework, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> um... So yeah, yeah, I, I like the way I often describe it is like, I like to just be able to just reason from first principles. And um, I guess I, I don't know, I'm not totally sure like when I really, when, when that really like became my style um, of, of how I like to think about things. But um I mean, it may, it may have been some some of uh, you know just learning functional programming because functional programming is very like you sort of you pick a set like when you design like a functional library it's like you pick a, a very 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 small set of primitives and and then you kind of reason like when you're doing library design you sort of reason about like okay if if these were the primitives then just logically like what would be expressible using these primitives and you know like is does that give me everything that i need or do i want something else so so like so yeah maybe just getting used to that that way of of thinking about things um something that i just like really like about reasoning from first principles is like there's something um you get like a kind of certainty about the conclusions that you reach that um, you just feel like you understand it so much better um, in the sense that like, if say you're like, you're working on some problem and you're like, you're not sure what the answer is. And so you, you go and you, you go at, you know, talk to your friend and you say, hey, I'm, I'm working on this problem. You know, what do you think? And, you, and you, your, your friend like says, oh, you know, you, you should do X, Y, Z. And, you know, maybe your friend is like an expert 
And so like, you really like trust that, um, you know, that if they say to do X, Y, Z, like, okay, they're, they're probably correct. But like that, you don't like have, but it's sort of like a black box, right? It's like, okay, they're telling you X, Y, Z. And like, maybe they've given you some reasons for it, but like they haven't, it's, it's not enough that you like fully believe it yourself. Um, and, and, and sort of by the same token, like if, if you like reason from first principles and come to some conclusion, then you can sort of be like so confident in that conclusion, at least, you know, or you, you know what that conclusion really depends on. It depends on what were the original assumptions that you make made. And then what was like the, you know, sort of chain of logical reasoning that you use to, to get to your conclusions. And it's like, you sort of know what your knowledge is rests upon. And like, that's like a, just like a very, like, it's like a, a good feeling if you like have to make any kind of decision. Whereas like, if you don't really know what your knowledge rests upon, if it's sort of vague, if you just sort of have like advice that, and maybe the advice was like kind of coming from a different place, or maybe it, it was actually based on different assumptions. You sort of like don't really know quite how applicable it is to your exact situation. And it's sort of like, you're not quite sure what to do with it. Whereas like, yeah, the reasoning from first principles, you sort of like always kind of know like where you stand. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess I kind of, I like that. And, and I, I think it's like surprisingly like productive in the sense of like, you can get very far reasoning from first principles. Like you don't, like in, in some ways it's like a better guide to understanding a problem or a domain than sort of a more undirected, just like, okay, I'm going to like read everything there is to know about this field. And, um, you know, and then hopefully I'll, I'll know what to do. <laughs> it's more so, so like, in fact, like the way that I like read, you know, papers and, and things like that and, and like do, do research is like, I kind of actually, I don't know, maybe some people would say I, I like do it backwards. It's like, I actually like, I, I just think about the problem, whatever the problem is. Uh, I mean, if I happen to know about, you know, existing techniques or research, like I, I would incorporate that into my thinking, but, but I don't really like try to do a whole bunch of like literature review or anything like that. I just like think about the problem, reason from first principles. And then like, I, just just doing that like i feel like i understand the problem space like pretty well and then at that point like i might like go out and like uh go do some research where it's like it's sort of more clear to me what the problem space is and like what some of the likely solutions are going to look like and then when i like read a paper um i can just sort of fit fit that paper in, I can be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, they're, they're exploring like this, this part of the solution space. And like, you know, I can see how they, they got to that point. And like, it's like, I have more of a, more of a compass or, or like way of exploring the space. That's not just like totally random and just, you know, reading a bunch of stuff and, and not quite knowing like what I'm looking for. Totally. Uh, that makes sense. So, yeah. And yeah, there's definitely like a lot of that with 
just yeah even like working on unison it'd be like i'd be working on some aspect of it and 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 then i realized like okay okay now that i understand kind of you know what i'm looking for it's like okay i'm gonna go read uh you know some some type theory papers in this particular area to like understand this better and and you know because whereas if like if i just started out and and read you know i mean there's like this massive literature of like people studying different kinds of type systems and and writing about them and you could just spend like years just reading about that and so yeah it, it helps I don't know. You, you can be a lot more guided and, and structured in, in how you um, uh, explore the space, I guess. That's really good advice, especially for someone like me who's you know, trying to be systematic about building programming languages. And sometimes I, I, I think I, I go on either side of it. Sometimes I'm building too much and I haven't thought deeply enough about what I'm building. And sometimes I spend a lot of time with my head in the clouds reading papers. So I think maybe there's a place in the middle where I think about from first principles the problem I'm trying to solve and then read papers and build to kind of more holistically from from that so yeah more for me to and think. like so something related to that kind of uh, mode of operating is like it's it actually I think it actually takes time to or it takes time and experience to develop reasoning principles like when uh, like, I feel like when I, when I first started out, um, programming, um, I mean, I had like basically, you know, when I like left college and I, you know, was doing some programming and I basically had like no idea what I was doing really. And, and like, um, like I didn't have sort of the reasoning principles that would let me mentally like explore uh, like the consequences of making different decisions with software, like with fidelity, like I like and that and it's so like if you ask me to like evaluate like design A versus design B, I, it was like I would have been like, well, I don't know, you know, yeah, let's just try building it, um, and then it would only become more clear later, like kind of what the implications are, but and it's sort of like only like over time. And especially like learning functional programming, where functional design is like all about that, of just like being able to reason about the implications of different choices, and and so it's like that's like that those the discovery of those reasoning principles and like mental uh, just fluency with like uh, doing that reasoning is like that in and of itself is just like this huge lever I feel um, it's it just like lets you iterate in your in your brain on on different choices uh, more more quickly and you, you often like don't have to write the code because you just like you basically know what the what the outcome uh, of, of writing the code based on a, a certain way of approaching the problem is going to be and I think that's and, um, a pretty good way to articulate kind of the difference between like a, a beginner programmer and an advanced programmer. And, and part of what I, I think we're both trying to accomplish with our research in this field is uh, making it easier, creating like better tools of thought for people, for beginner programmers to like be able to think the thoughts that wouldn't have been thinkable for them for like until they practice programming for like a decade. But the, but the tools yeah. are so expressive and powerful and like abstract 
that they can like think those thoughts with the help and like with the companionship of the machine. That, that exactly. Think- yeah. Yeah. It's like it's kind of messed up that you know the machine basically the computer basically provides no help at all in in uh, and it actually you know, slows you down. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It's like better to think in your head. You can go faster in your head than, than like with the help of the computer. The computer actively works against you today as opposed to like helping you. Yeah. And right. So it's like, right. The, the, I mean, you can like, of course you can write the code and then you can run the code, but that takes a long time. Um, and so, yeah. So there's just like a lot, yeah, a lot we could do to have, uh, have it be more of like a dialogue between, uh, you know, the computer and you so that you're not just like, you don't have to become this expert um, to, to be able to sort of see what the implications are. Totally. Actually, I saw this, um, I read this article, it was a long time ago, which was talking about um, just in general, like how technology, um, so they, they were talking about sort of like microphone, uh, like the invention of like the microphone and um, and uh, you know speakers, right? And before before those things existed, like if you wanted to be a singer, you had to go through this like very extensive training of like you know of, like if you, like a, to be an opera singer, where you you have to be able to project your voice in this very specific way, and there's a lot of work to it. And you know, you know, on the one hand, that's okay, like you know opera. I mean, I'm not really into opera, but, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's like really amazing things that, that, uh, you know, a, a well-trained singer can, can do. And that's, that's great. But it's also this big barrier, um, that sort of leaves out, you know, the rest of the population that isn't able to go through all that training. And, and then it's, and it's like every, every piece of technology is kind of like that. It's like, even, um, you know, like the invention of the word processor, um, where you can like cut and paste, uh, text and move it around very easily. Like, okay, well now if you want to write something, you don't, you, you don't need to like keep track of everything in your head and be just like one of these people who like can like write down like fully formed, coherent, uh, you know, thoughts like sort of in this very linear fashion. And of course, like people were doing write it, lots of writing before word processors exist, but they had to develop like this, this totally different set of skills of like being able to keep track of more things in their head and, and, and think about, um, you know, how to, how to like do everything before working with like whatever the physical artifact was for, for producing text. And so it's a, like, I think it's a really great uh, analogy. I like hadn't thought about that. Until recently, I was thinking like I was gonna, I was gonna, I was writing a to-do list out on a piece of paper, and I realized that I like ordered some to-dos incorrectly, and I wanted to make a a list of the, the tasks, like a subtask of another task, and I was like, I guess I draw arrows now. Like, I didn't realize how powerful even that simple feature of like copy and paste was. Yeah, right, right. It's like you don't even think about it anymore, but um, the, just the fact that that exists is like, yeah, you you have less. You have to be. You don't have to be as like clear-headed about what you're doing when you first start, and and the computer doesn't get in the way. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's the same with like building building software. Like, you know, 
right now you have to master this crazy set of like arcane skills to like build you know uh software today and you know you have to be able to like yeah do all this thinking in your head and it's you know takes a long time and um yeah, I don't want to make it sound like it's going to be trivial in the future, but but yeah, there's like so many barriers that we could like remove that would make things so much easier that make the computer more of a guide. Um, Let's do it. I'm pumped. This this got me excited. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, well, anyways, I I'm, I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This was a really fun conversation. Cool. Um, before yeah I, I really enjoyed it yeah thanks <laughs> awesome yeah before we wrap up i wanted to give you a chance to uh expose the paul api to the world so like where what are the the ways people can interface with you is it on twitter email uh, blogging like what where what's your interface what are you looking for you're looking for open source contributors uh people to read your blog uh what's your api ah okay um yeah i mean so i'm, I'm on twitter uh it's p chisano like uh first initial last name um there's unisonweb.org is the the unison site um which has a bunch of links to other stuff yeah the the unison site is yeah i kind of mentioned it was it's, it was more of a research blog and it's it's there's a bunch of stuff that's like out of date or you know i don't know so i think uh we're we're working uh, so i'm working with uh, uh one of the other open source contributors are working on the new uh, Unison runtime. And so there's like a bunch of stuff that's happening. And, um, you know, I'd say any, any big updates would be on, on the Unison blog. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Just, I guess, stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, great. Well, thanks so much, Paul, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Okay, bye. All right, bye.